Hey gang, I got to start off today's episode on a bit of a somber note as a really good friend of the show and a really good person passed away last week, was actually murdered in his home in Fairfax, Virginia. Uh, that is Gret Glier, who founded the incredible app Donorcy, uh, which has just done incredible things connecting people directly to the people that need help around the world. It really was subverting a lot of what the larger charitable organizations uh, we're doing, of course, at a much larger cost, uh, making a lot of people richer along the way. Uh, meanwhile, Gret, Gret took no salary from Donorcy. I don't know if everybody knows that. He took not a single dime from Donorcy. He had a Patreon where people could, outside of Donorcy, voluntarily uh, go contribute uh, to give him a salary while he did this charitable work. So um, just somebody who truly did some of the most amazing, truly, truly helping people. Um, and at a, at a very, in a very selfless way. And uh, he is survived by his wife and two children. Obviously, this is going to be a very difficult time for them. So there is a GoFundMe that has been set up that I really like to encourage you all to give something to, even if it's just 5 or $10. Um, let's see the URL. You know, I'll, I'll post a link to this in today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com and uh, you know, in all the podcast show notes everywhere. But it's GoFundMe.com slash F, just the letter F slash Gret, G-R-E-T, dash Glier. And I'm sure if you just go on Fund Me, search Gret Glier, come over to Lions of Liberty, um, click on the link for this episode, and uh, we'll get you over there as well. But anything you can do, it's, it's really amazing to see right now. They've raised $65,000 out of 100000 goal um, to help uh, to help their family. So I know he was, I believe, the primary source of income for them. So um, anything you can do to, even if you can't contribute, to just share this around, because this was a person who really just, was I mean I I can't think of I, I, every time I picture Gret talking to him on a call or on a podcast I mean there's just always a smile on his face you know whether he's talking about horrible conditions in another country or you know really serious topics he just always approached something everything with um such positivity and that that really really shined off him I never had the pleasure to, to meet him in person and I, I can't imagine the people that knew him in real life must have felt that uh, even more but it definitely came across in all of my interactions with him and uh, this is definitely someone and someone whose family is absolutely worthy uh, of your help and support. So please do head over to GoFundMe. Again, it's GoFundMe.com slash F slash Gret dash Again, if you just search GoFundMe Gret Glier, I, I don't think you have a problem finding it. But if anybody does have an issue or, or wants to try to donate in another way, just, just let me know and reach out. Um, but that's all. Just wanted to let you guys know about that. Rest in peace, Gret. Right, guys, just last week I did a live stream with the academic agent, someone who, uh, as you'll hear in the interview, I actually know from man probably about a decade ago from a let's just say another life. Uh, but yeah, he does amazing work over at the Academic Agent YouTube channel, and I recently read his book, The Populist Delusion, so I wanted to have him on to talk about it. Of course, you could have seen this, you could have watched this live or before anybody else if you simply supported Lions of Liberty on Patreon at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty over on locals, lionsofliberty.locals.com. Uh, 
either of those venues will get you all of our exclusive bonus content. Brian's uh, daily good morning bleep ahead. Decided not to curse in this one. I don't know why. I, I go back and forth. Uh, Conspiracy Corner will be making its triumphant return very soon. So much going on back there for as little as five bucks a month to get to support the most amazing podcast network you've ever dreamed of. But uh, that being said, time to get to my conversation with Academic Agent. All right, I am here now with the gentleman who runs the YouTube channel, Academic Agent. He is also the author of the book, The Populist Delusion, which we'll be discussing more of today. Very pleased to welcome the Academic Agent himself. AA, are you ready to roar or what? Absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me, Mark. All right, well, sure thing. And, you know, before I get into the work you've been doing and everything you've been uh, talking about, writing about as far as politics goes, I have to let people peek behind the curtain a little bit and, uh, you know, clue people in on how we kind of have known each other for some time now. But in a very non-political way, you and I were both involved in some sort of old school wrestling podcasts a number of years ago. And I, I actually looked mm -hmm. back, so I know exactly when this was. It was in 2017 that you were chatting with me like, hey, aren't you into this libertarian stuff? He's like, I've got you. And you said, you know, you've been kind of getting into the politics stuff, too. You'd sent me a video you had done uh, breaking down like the different types of libertarians. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Parv's getting into uh, into this uh, libertarian stuff. Mm -hmm. And then it, fast forward five years later, and I'm listening to my friend Pete Quinones, and he has this guy academic agent on his program who I never heard of before, or so I thought, because I really recognized that voice. And I was kind of racking my brain. Where did I remind, where did I recognize that, that British charm, that British wit, that biting humor from? And it sure enough, it, it was you. It was the same person that I had known from those same old school wrestling podcasts. So I'll let you take it from anywhere you want, AA, but why don't you just kind of take me down the journey of how you became someone who, I guess, invested a lot of their time and effort and energy into analyzing and breaking down, you know, 70s and 80s pro wrestling matches into putting a lot of that time and energy into the realm of politics. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, now that's an intro. Yeah, it's kind of a strange, uh, kind of a strange thing because I've mentioned it, you know, in passing once, you know, once or twice over the years um, that I used to do these wrestling podcasts, but I've never actually told people where to find them or <laughs> what they were called or anything. So it's uh, it's kind of interesting, like world colliding. Yes. Um, I used to find this back on. Uh, I don't really use Facebook anymore, but, uh, you know, back when I was on Facebook uh, regularly, when I'd have friends from different parts of my life meeting each other, like on, in Facebook comments and things like that. So I always, I always found it like weird and I wanted to keep, I wanted to keep the different parts of my life segregated. Oh, but, I have just um, broken the world. Yeah. I've, I've broken the multiverse <laughs> open here. <laughs> but, but well, well, what can you do? I think it was only a matter of time um, before. So you uh, got found out, right? Yeah. But uh, yeah, uh, I'm a pretty uh, obsessive guy, I think it's uh, fair to say. And when I'm into something, I'm into it all the way. Um, I was, uh, I was uh, well, I've always been a wrestling fan, as uh, I'm sure you know. Um, and um, we really went pretty deep on some of that stuff back in 2013, 2014. Putting it really late. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when I say deep, we're, we're, I reckon we're talking about top like 0.5 percentile <laughs> on the internet, you know, um, <laughs> where, uh, you know, we, we, we were kind of like, uh, what do you call it? Like uh, Dave Meltzer revisionists or something. Sure, yeah, <laughs> we'd, yeah. Yeah, we, we'd want to overturn the wisdom. <laughs> so I guess the, the revisionist aspect has maybe always been in your uh, blood in some way. 
Yeah, yeah, maybe the the overturning of the conventional wisdom, right? Um, where uh, you know it was like, well, you know, because the, the internet culture had grown up, and it was like, well, if a guy does a headlock, that's a rest hold. You know, <laughs> it was just like, um, you know, Jerry Lawler, he's a terrible worker. He just uh, all he does is punch. You know, is that it? Um, where are the moves? Do you remember all of oh, that? I do, yeah. Um, if they're not doing a 360-degree <laughs> flips around, then they're not wrestling. Yeah, so a lot of the stuff that you know I was engaged in back then was kind of like overturning uh, that sort of wisdom. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's quite difficult. I mean, I have no conception of what the wrestling fandom is like, uh, you know, in this day and age. But, like, uh, you know, it was conventional wisdom, for example, that Greg the Hammer Valentine was boring. Mm. Whereas, like, Greg Valentine was an awesome worker, you know? And it was just like that, that was the sort of thing that we did. Was kind I, of I like, think Ron Garvin was one of the guys you, you turned me on to the most in terms of like appreciating someone after the fact. Where I, even when I was growing up and he was in relatively major, you know, TV programs, I saw him as boring. But he's one of those guys that when I listen to you sort of break him down and then I go back and watch some of these Ric Flair matches with him, I'm like, oh no, this yeah. guy's, this guy's incredible. Yeah. You want, you always want Ron Garvin in, uh, in the Techwood studios with the flags, <laughs> little 10 minutes, little 10 minute sprint brawl. He was fantastic at those. Um, but, but, but anyway, um, we, I think we were going pretty hardcore on that. And, uh, basically I, I ended up getting burnt out by, we, we did this massive project. If you remember, uh, trying to find the greatest wrestler ever. And, um, even back then, Mark, there was, uh, strange notions creeping in even in wrestling like you know social justice themes and things it was like hold on a second what we have to we have to uh represent uh luchadors or if they're no or if they're no, or if they're no good you know right. it's like um i mean as it happens there are loads of really good luchadors but there was this this, this sort of thing creeping in oh yeah we have to uh, we have to represent the joshi workers right, and right all of this sort of stuff and it was like well and you need a full diversity in every area of your list even when it's like what you were just a freaking wrestling podcast man like <laughs> so it was like um you know i was getting a bit irritated by that but but basically i just think we um i just think i got a bit burnt out and at the same time um Obviously, back in 2016, huge and tumultuous things were happening uh, in the world of politics. Obviously, here we had Brexit. Uh, over there, you had uh, Trump, of course. Um, and um, I wanted to try to make sense of what was happening. Um, less the actual votes themselves and more the insane, hysterical uh, overreaction from the losing sides of both of those. I mean, in this country, the the pro-Remain side, they just went crazy and they never let up. Like at any time um, between, well, pretty much at any time between uh, the, the the vote coming in and then pretty much when COVID started, that was, that was the period of our, you know, our establishment uh, going crazy. Um, and then... Do you remember when Trump gave that speech when he said uh, it's going to be Brexit times ten? Do you remember he said yes, that? Yes. And then it and then it was, uh, and and it was probably in retrospect it was even like times a hundred because, however insane our media was, your media was just, I mean they were just mental and it was getting to the point where 
they were just openly lying. It was like, you know, I'd watch a speech and then I'd see how it was reported. What? I mean, that, this bears no relation to anything I watched, you know, yeah. um, and the, the dishonest editing and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I was getting uh, increasingly irritated uh, in other areas of life. Uh, I, I, um, I worked at a university, as you may, as, as you may know. Um, this was creeping in everywhere, you know, this, uh, this kind of strident, um, earnest uh need to label everything racist or sexist or you know it was it was really getting like insufferable at that time in 2016 um so uh, i start I, I was just watching a few youtubers back then like uh sargon of a can who's a good buddy of mine uh you know carl benjamin um and uh various other people who i don't need to go into um and um i thought well you know, I'm watching Sargon break down why people hate feminism and so on. But, um, like, I was, you know, being an academic, I was familiar with a lot of the background material, a lot of the kind of new left thinking that came out with the uh, various strands of Marxism in the 60s and the 70s. You know, uh, Michel Foucault, Louis Althusser, people like this. And um, so I made a series of videos basically trying to uh, educate people like uh, people like Carl and various others um, on where a lot of this stuff came from. Um, back then, people called it uh, cultural Marxism. Um, since then, that phrase is now apparently anti-Semitic. Uh, so, but th still, whichever way you look at it, there was a cultural turn in Marxism. You know, in a cut a long story short, the revolution didn't happen in London. It didn't happen in Paris. Uh, why not? Well, it didn't happen because they didn't have control of the culture. Um, it didn't happen because capitalism was uh, capitalism was able to dupe um, the masses into believing they were free through ideology. This is the kind of basic new left thesis. So, in order to in order to uh, ferment the change they wanted. Um, they rather than focus on economics uh, and focus on uh, you know control of the means of production, uh, a la classic Marxism. Um, instead, they wanted to control the culture, capture the institutions, um, you know, the intellectual class, uh, if you want to put it that way. Um, and basically, they were successful. <laughs> that, that plan worked, uh, as far as I can tell. Um, so yeah, the, the, when I first came on, when I first made my channel, I wanted to outline that sort of stuff. Um, but then, obviously, when people start watching you <clears throat> in fairly big numbers, you then have to start like well, justifying like, well, what, what do you stand for? Um, and I was always, I was always pro capitalist. You know, I was always pro. Um, I thought the market worked. I thought it was just a no brainer. You know, um, I remember the soviet union and uh communism and i just couldn't believe like i literally couldn't believe there were still people knocking around in the mid you know in the uh, middle of the uh, 21st century uh still having these arguments about like you know well well <laughs> you know communism is a better system and all of this sort of stuff so when i very first um started getting into debates with people it was on that topic, you know, you kind of immediately got pushed into socialism versus capitalism. And then of course, um, 
years ago, I'd read uh, some economics. I, I was familiar with uh, a, a book called Freakonomics. I don't know if you read that years ago. I'm aware of it. Uh, Never read it. Yeah. Um, and then uh, going to, to Thomas Sowell, um, who's a, a Milton Friedman. Uh, I was aware of Milton Friedman uh, before. I was a fan of that series, you know, like Free to Choose. Um, all of the all of the kind of classic libertarian stuff, and then of course, um, you know, you, you quickly get into the Austrian school versus the Chicago school, and you know, the Austrians have better arguments. Let's face it; so even today, they have better arguments, right? Um, and so, you know, I then, as time went on, started making videos on economics. Started making because it struck me that a lot of people just didn't understand even the very basic econ, right? So, a lot of the stuff on my channel. Uh, in 2017 2018 was just kind of like uh free market econ 101 type stuff um but uh, <clears throat> how can i put this uh i sense that I, I even even back then i sense that there's some that there was some aspect of the analysis that was missing um in people like uh Murray Rothbard and uh, Hopper, who was big at that time. Everybody was reading Hopper, right? Um, Democracy, the God that Failed, uh, was a good book. I, uh, still a good book. Um, I read that and I thought, well, there's there's something not working in our on what they call liberal democracy. Um, there was also a book by Brian Kaplan. Do you remember that? Uh, it was about uh, how the incentive structures of uh, democracy don't work. Um, I'm not a particularly big fan of Brian Kaplan, but he wrote uh, he wrote like his version of Democracy: The God That Failed as well, um, which uh, I remember. You know, I, I, I quickly saw that there was something not working with uh, with democracy, and that the the wedding of liberalism and democracy wasn't quite right that democracy isn't liberalism in fact democracy leads directly to socialism every time um and uh so i, I you know my thoughts started to move like against democracy i guess um with that sort of stuff and then the real thing that um kind of set me on the path to where i am today uh i mean <laughs> i i i'm not a big one for labels uh these days, I if I if, if I'm forced, I'll call myself something like a, a postmodern traditionalist, whatever that means. <laughs> um, you know, uh, just but, enough uh, terms to confuse anybody. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, it, it basically it basically means that uh, I have traditional values, but I still watch Seinfeld or whatever. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but but um, yeah, I, I read a book uh, by James Burnham called The Machiavellians. Um, of which the populist delusion has been described as a kind of modern update of Burnham's Machiavellians. Um, uh, James Burnham was a um, he, uh, he was a Trotskyite who then became a, a, a conservative uh, thinker uh, around the time of the Second World War. Um, uh, he's called by a lot of people the first neocon, although. That is not quite an accurate, just because neocon has all sorts of associations, and um, where Burnham was—I mean, yeah—he was very hawkish on the Cold War. Um, but if you read uh, his book, his later book, *Suicide of the West*, 
you know, he, he, he is not a neocon in the same way that someone like John, Jonah Goldberg is, right? Um, he's a very different type of uh, character. Um, but anyway, this, this, this book, The Machiavellians, which is a really kind of hard, realist look at politics and power, um, it kind of flicked the switch for me and it changed the way I understood politics period and once you it's, it's like i mean people talk in terms of like red pills and black pills and so on but i don't know anyone who can read uh, the machiavellian and still come out the other side as a liberal democrat you know it's just just not possible um and so um the first thing i wanted to do uh, after reading that was to bring this realism to the libertarians, because I was in, I was in with the Mises crowd at that time. I, I, I even gave a few talks at the Mises uh, Institute, trying to bring the elite theory into there, because I, I thought that actually the libertarians um, should have the same view of power. Right? They should. I mean, they're trying to understand things the same as everyone else. Um, it's just that they, you know, they want the they want the free market society, and so. I did try. I did my best to introduce uh, those guys to elite theory. Uh, I think. I, I think, broadly speaking, they, um, as far as I'm aware, like Jeff Deist and uh, uh, So Bishop and those guys are. You know, they have read that stuff now, and they they seem to have wised up to a lot of that material. Uh, I'm not. I'm not uh, crediting that to myself. I'm just saying that. Of all of the libertarians, they they're the ones who seem to have at least taken notice of this sort of uh, sort of sort of stuff most. Hey, kiddies, have I told you lately about our friends Carlos and Vanessa? Carlos and Vanessa Abelar, a fantastic couple who are the owners of our fantastic sponsors, Paloma Verde CBD. Quite honestly, and quite truly, I can say. If nothing else, the most delicious CBD uh, gummies I have ever tried in my life. I had to literally fight my hand like I was Bruce Campbell in The Evil Dead to stop myself from eating the entire uh, little uh, canister. I guess you can call it a canister. Yeah, little canister. So maybe get two of the gummies just to be safe. But the fantastic news here is we have a discount on all of their products. A 20% discount if you just use discount code ROAR at checkout. Head over to Paloma Verde CBD at PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Use discount code ROAR for 20% off your order. By the way, almost forgot to mention free shipping for all orders over 75 bucks. You just can't go wrong with Paloma Verde. I think the difficult thing for a lot of libertarians when elite theory starts to come up, and especially when you're you're trying to look at this as look. The, the writings of people that wrote about the elite theory, the managerial elite, this sort of thing, they're not describing the world that they want. And that is what libertarians are pretty much always doing. They're trying to describe the world that they want. They're explaining why it's so logical for things to operate this way. But then there's a gap where... Okay, so why don't we have that world? And that's kind of the gap that I think that the elite theorists and people like you in the modern day are, are trying to sort of close by saying, look, mm-hmm. I'm not describing how I want it. We're describing how it is. And and a lot of libertarians just don't like how it is. So, so for them to accept yeah. how it is, is almost to just admit like, yes, we're not going to have this stateless utopia that we want. Exactly. Um, And that is why they're called the Machiavellians, because Machiavelli has a very famous sentence that, you know, I want to write 
the world as it is, not how it ought to be. Um, so, so I wrote a book called The Defenders of Liberty, um, which, as I showed you before, is very expensive because it was an academic book. It was book, 114 on Amazon it, when we checked earlier yeah, today. But it did, that book did get bought by like all the think tanks and things like that. You know, the, the libertarian people, you know, I gave a, I gave a talk at the, um, the IEA, which is like a, like a UK libertarian think tank. Uh, what's it called? Uh, the like a UK Cato kind of thing? Or? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're a tiny bit less gay than Cato, <laughs> but <laughs> that's, not, that's, not saying, that's not saying much, to be honest. Um, yeah, the, the Institute of Economic Affairs, they're in London. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I gave a talk um, on that book there. And what I was trying to do in that book was have uh, this hard-boiled realism wedded to uh, kind of Austrian, Austrian econ. Not necessarily libertarianism, mm -hmm. because the two things are not the same, right? Because the Austrians, from a certain point of view, are also realists. They call themselves causal realists, because they're, they're talking about how economics actually functions, right? Um, but uh, yeah, so I was trying to do this. I was trying to build that bridge in that book, The Defenders of Liberty. Um, but as time went on, um, I came to see that this, that the real problem was the, was libertarianism. Is I'm going to have to break this frame. And um, shortly after, in fact, shortly after that book came out, I really started to then start critiquing libertarianism. I did, I did a whole set of videos um, really attacking some of the a priori assumptions of, uh, of libertarians. Um, in fact, I, I recently did a, a retrospective series where I re-released a whole load of videos that I, I've done over the past six years in kind of a box set, if that makes any sense. So and one of those retrospectives, I think part 11, it's called critiquing libertarianism. It's about four hours long. Um, people can go and watch that in their own time. But yeah, if you're looking, if you're looking for like flashy six minute breakdowns, you're looking to the wrong place. A academic <laughs> agent really bre breaks things down um, in an extreme degree. But that's that's what you're here for. Yeah. So I um <clears throat> I uh I came to see a lot of things. So if you really understand what people like Burnham are talking about, um. The first thing is that we don't live in a system that you could call capitalist. Okay. In fact, the words socialism and capitalism are basically meaningless and have been since about the 1940s. Um, he describes something called a managerial revolution, um, whereby the old school entrepreneurial capitalists, that is your, you know, your Henry Fords, your Walt Disney's, your JP Morgans of this world. Um, who were the, you know, they were the classic entrepreneurs that Mises talks about, you know, the, that they have an idea, I want to sell cars, um, you know, they, they sell it for the best price point. Um, and they, uh, you know, they reach the, they're made rich because, uh, the people have voted them in and out of power. Like they, they voted, they voted to watch Disney movies through purchasing tickets. They voted for Ford by buying cars, right? This is the classic libertarian explanation or free market explanation for these sorts of figures. Um, but Burnham says that um, basically in the time of uh, FDR, 
so in the 1930s, the New Deal era, um, but not just in America, right around the world, right across Europe. Um, in Germany, obviously, you had uh, the National Socialists who came to power. In uh, in Russia, you had the, the Soviet Union. He basically says that these three systems, the National Socialists in Germany, the USSR, and FDR's New Deal America were three managerial states. There were three varieties of basically the same system, okay, and that the the differences between them were only cosmetic. Um, uh, now, some people may may think that's absurd, right? Um, but let's think about the how a company goes from being entrepreneurial to managerial. Okay. Um, in fact, we've seen a very, very good example of an attempt to make it go the other way. Okay. Do you remember when Elon Musk tried to buy Twitter a couple of weeks back? I do. I, I'm old enough to yeah, remember this, that. This, yeah. yeah. This is this was huge news. Now, Elon Musk is one man, and he was trying. He was trying to take a company that was under managerial control. That is, the share ownership is dispersed. If you look into who owns Twitter, uh, or who owned Twitter before Elon, Elon Musk got involved, it's dispersed among many, many, many different shareholders. Uh, and typically, on most massive multi-cash uh, national companies, you'll see the same few names crop up: Vanguard, BlackRock. You know, five percent Black BlackRock, five percent Vanguard, um, various other investment firms. Um, uh, sometimes you'll see other corporations have an investment wing, you know, Coca-Cola Investments or whatever own 5% of Twitter. Um, you'll see certain wealthy individuals. But these are all like uh, the people who uh, own the shares. But who actually has functional control of that company? Is it the shareholders or is it the people who sit in the executive management suite? It's the managers who have control. Um, and in fact, uh, Twitter, I can't remember the name of the guy now, uh, the news Parag Agrawal, is it? Uh, like literally a manager for hire is the new CEO of Twitter. Uh, Jack Dorsey, uh, even when he was in charge, um, only had about a 3% stake in Twitter. He was never like an old fashioned entrepreneurial capitalist in the in the manner of a Henry Ford who had uh, executive almost monarchical power over the company um and so in in this, in this way I, I'm itching to get the uh, the WWE Vince McMahon analogy in here because I think it could probably fit in a very similar way <laughs> yeah I mean well I mean Vince uh, I think Vince is Vince is in the middle of a managerial coup yes, right yes this uh, all of this stuff about him uh, I mean, I've been telling people, people have been telling me about this all week because they know I'm into wrestling and I'm just be like, listen, Vince has done this a hundred times before. He'll, 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 he'll land on his feet. He always does. He might not, but I, I, I'd be really surprised if uh, Vince doesn't die the owner of, of WWE, right? But um, yeah, I mean, Vince is pretty much the last of the old school entrepreneurs. Pretty, I mean, I can't, can you think of another one? Yeah, I mean, in terms of like perhaps WWE is a public company, but he controls all the shares to make it still still make it essentially his company. So I mean, it pretty much he pretty much is like the, the last of that breed. Yeah. So 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 essentially, the, the 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 system, if you want, is going from a system like you know just Vince in control 
on his own. In fact, we really got to get nerdy. Like, it's like um, it's like every company became uh, like mid nineties WCW <laughs> run by <laughs> run by committee with Kip, Kip Allen right. Frey and uh, Jim Hurd and all these uh, all these uh, suits. You I know, mean, it is a, it is a good analogy. It's where they bring in the managers, the executives, the TV people, so to speak who ne- don't necessarily know anything about wrestling, but they're the business people and they're, they're there to steer the ship. But that inevitably only ends up in, in with one thing in WCW's case, it ended up in uh, you know, eventually the end of the company. Yeah. And, and in fact, I mean, WCW shows how the incentives of a managerial class are not the same as the incentives of the, of the, of the single entrepreneurial. Owner. I, I sense a four hour academic agent video coming out of this, comparing the, the, the rise and fall of WCW with the, the managerial elite, but we'll, we'll let you work on that another day. Maybe. Um, yeah. So, so, um, but, but essentially that happened to all companies. Um, so, so now you have a corporation that has been seized by this managerial class. Okay. Now the important thing to understand about the managerial class is that they're not just corporate executives. They also run the civil service. They also run the government. They also run, you know, your um, your local school, for example. You know, these people are are able to um, occupy these positions and, and effectively seize uh, oligarchical control over each of these institutions. That's why in 2022... A lot of people on our side of things are looking around and being like, there's nobody on our side. Is there a single institution anywhere that is not on your side, that, 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 is, that is on our side of things, that will stand up to the BLM and the fucking Pride Month and the, all, of these, um, all of these woke things that are incessantly pushed? Um, they're all on the same page. They walk in complete lockstep. And we've seen this. Not just on one or two issues now. We've seen it across a whole range of issues. Um, you know, okay, there's BLM and there's Pride, but what about the Ukraine war? They were completely 100% all on the same page on that. Or um, or the pandemic, they were all on the same page on that. Uh, you know, so, so we really do have this um, almost absolutist system uh, whereby uh, all institutions sing from the same hymn sheet and are run by a recognizable oligarchical class of managers. Um, and above them, uh, there are, uh, let's say, a ruling, like a permanent ruling class who are not necessarily the, the people who hold office, um, which, which to put in really simple terms, um, I would just ask members of your audience this. Um, do you believe that Joe Biden is the man who is calling the shots in the White House? Uh, you know, in, in, in Russia, you could say what you want about Vladimir Putin. At least you know he's the one in charge. Whereas I'm not sure if anybody in America, including Joe Biden himself, truly believes that Joe Biden is the man calling the shots. And maybe it's the case where what has always been true is just more obvious than ever in our current era. And with the current person that they've chose to sort of just slap, slap a sticker on this regime and say, here is the face of it. But I think for anyone paying attention, 
this this does not highlight a, a change in how things are run. It's just seemingly become more obvious than ever, including to people that don't really do deep dives on, on politics or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, the common phrase people use is the the mask has come off now. They're not they're not really trying to hide it anymore. Um, but I also think that a, a huge part of the reason that this has happened has been because of the internet has damaged their monopoly control over the flow of information um and th this has happened before in history you know most famously with the uh the gutenberg press um the catholic church didn't like that uh led to the reformation all around europe um but uh you know in the early days the only things they could do to control that were to, to censor people to destroy presses to uh, literally burn people at the stake um you know all of these things happen um so there there what there is a kind of uh technological disruption um that has kind of given us this little window now this window is shrinking i think you'd agree because the this regime that we're dealing with now um for all of their day-to-day -day incompetence they they like any power regime they have an eye on threats to their power and they have been doing everything they possibly can to close this window to censor more to um uh marginalize dissident voices uh you know get get people fired from their jobs um you know take down youtube channels and so you know that they're, they're trying to get their monopoly control over narrative uh back um to where they had it in the 1990s um but uh, i i do think they're going about it in quite an inept way because back in the 1990s um I, I've got a phrase I like to use, Mark, uh, back to Fresh Prince, right? Yeah. In the 1990s, we all watched Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? Um, I'm not racist because uh, I'm not racist because I, I watch a Fresh Prince and uh, <laughs> Uncle Phil, he's a, he's a good guy, you know? <laughs> we've, and we've, solved, we've, solved, yes. we, we've solved racism. <laughs> um, that, I mean, that was the that was the kind of attitude a lot of a lot of people just had by default coming into this whole period that we're talking about. Um, you know, even me, like even me, if you talk to me by, I don't know, uh, eight, nine years ago, I'd probably given you some version of that. Um, so some version of that. Um, but they, they are making that impossible now. The, the, uh, the media, like I'm, I'm still waiting for the moment that they try to uh, wind back on some of the avert uh, explicitly um, I mean, there's no other way to describe it. Kind of anti-white messaging, um, the uh, stuff that is um, basically offensive to the sensibilities of, like, I mean, some of the some of the um, the, the stuff with kids and uh, transsexualism, you know, seven and eight year olds being sexualized and things. I mean, this sort of stuff is, is, is disgusting to like 95% of people. It's openly offensive. To, to the to, point you almost have to wonder, is this designed for a pushback? I mean, to the, to the point it's gotten so extreme, like you have to either think that it is just ineptness at the ineptness at the highest level to push this hard on things, or it's with some sort of, you know, plan in mind. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, 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 it's hard to know whether it's just, um, it's like, I mean, there are different theories, right? I mean, some people have the, the Rwanda theory, you know, in Rwanda in 1994, they, um, they, uh, there was actual genocide and they, and for about a year beforehand, 
they did these radio broadcasts and TV broadcasts and posters and all sorts of things, basically prepping um, the population for what was about to come. Um, and people have actually done a like comparisons uh, between that sort of material and the sort of material that we are subjected to uh, on a pretty much daily basis and found similarities. Uh, that's one explanation. Um, another explanation that comes from a th- from elite theory and um, uh, what some people call the NRX, you know, the neo-reactionary uh, writers, is, um, is something called bio-Leninism, whereby uh, as a regime becomes more brittle, it starts to select for loyalty rather than ability. So, you know, back in the day, you would have had very skilled propagandists. You know, one of the people I talk about in the book is a guy called Edward Bernays. He, he wrote a book called Propaganda. Uh, now, he was a left winger, um, but he he was extremely skilled at what he did. Okay. And he understood. I mean, the, the thing he was famous for was the Liberty Sticks, you know, getting the um, selling cigarettes to women by calling them liberty sticks. Um, uh, you know, very subtle techniques in order to get people to do what you want. Um, and his old trick was they're going to do what you want and they're, and they're going to, they're going to think in their own mind that it's their own decision. Okay. That was his whole propaganda technique. Very interesting book. If, uh, if you ever read it. Um, but, uh, now rather than a man like that being chosen, um, they're going to choose someone who's just like uh, toes the line, someone who's who they know is loyal, because anyone anyone who's got too much of an independent mind is going to is like you know like me. I, I don't want to, they'll just get rid of me. Um, but now you now you kind of now you kind of lose the dy- the dynamism of that person, and now you've got a kind of box sticker in the in their place, a kind of compliance type person. Um, so the, the regime overall loses vitality and its messaging starts to become very, very, uh, you know, I think it's notable. It's just inept. The, you know, the 1990s propaganda that we were subjected to worked. It, it was actually effective because a lot of people adopted those beliefs. When, I mean, when Sergeant Slaughter turned on the U.S. for Iraq, like I, it worked, that worked on me great. Like I was like, yeah, we got to We got to put a stop to this. <laughs> A couple of months back, I uh, I started watching um, in 1984 uh, uh, Championship Wrestling WWF, and uh, Slaughter came in and he um, he did a face turn uh, because Iron Sheik Iron right. Sheik uh, came in with the Iranian flag and um, he he basically spat on the stars and the stripes and tried to set it on fire and um, I mean as you could imagine in 1984. That was enough to turn Sergeant Slaughter babyface. There was almost a riot in the building. Yeah. The heat was electric. I, I reckon if you did that today, the angle just wouldn't work because not enough people, like the the country, is just not unified enough to. Um, and the kind of most people don't even res- wouldn't even respect the flag that much. They, they still do try to play up the uh, the like the evil foreigner thing once in a while, but it never has that same kind of heat be- behind it as it would in the eighties. I mean, they probably they, they probably cheer for the Iron Sheep these days. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> so you understand what I'm saying, right? So this this shows you that the the overall aggregate effect of the of the messaging, um, you know, it, it's gone from. Uh, a kind of um, manufacturing of consent to a much more brittle kind of threat, almost threat system where people are just scared to 
say what they really think. Yeah, whether it's cancel culture, whether it's take this jab or lose your job, I mean, it's it's it definitely seems like the the turn has been more just forget the trying to make sure that manufacture the con- consent. We'll we'll have the the brainwashed dupes. We'll always have everyone else. It's mm-hmm. it's you know it's it's just the, the straight up threats at this point. Do you think that shows like like a, a sign of weakness in the current regime or the current elites, or is it simply a, a change in strategy for one reason or another? It's very difficult to say. I, I do think part of it is just ineptitude, in actual ineptitude on the part of some of these people who are in positions of influence and power now, um, especially second and third generation people who are literally in those positions because their father was a journalist or their grandfather was a journalist or something. Um, there, there are a lot of, there's a lot of, um, I'm going to put this delicately, Mark. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of nepotism in the media. I'll just put it that way. And the current generation are a lot less careful with their strategies. Um, they're a lot more in your face. Uh, and they're a lot more open about the sort of things they do. I mean, look at that Time Magazine article. I mean, that 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 says it all yeah. right there. Yeah. So 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 that they actually don't do the ABCs of concealment that that, that they used to do in the nineties and the and the eighties. Um, so so that's one that's one part of it. Uh, the other part of it is that I do I do genuinely think that the um, the elites are aware of and are scared of populist sentiment. Um. And they haven't really figured out a way of dealing with this. And so, you know, in the, in the book, I talk about how a regime can be, uh, you can get a soft managerial regime, which is the the regime that we're describing from the 90s that we're all used to. And you can get a hard managerial regime, like, like Stalin's Russia, for example, you know, a coercive regime. Um, the, the, the soft managerial regime is led by masters of persuasion, people who rely on cunning uh pareto calls them foxes right um whereas the hard managerial regimes are led by lions uh people who are willing to use force and coercion um now the very interesting thing for us is that if they continue on their current trajectory they might not continue on this trajectory because they have other options which i'll go into in a minute um but if they continue on this trajectory at some point they're going to have to transform from being a, a soft managerial regime to a hard managerial regime, to, i.e. To, to needing to use force. Um, and that will be the moment of truth for this regime. You know, if somebody like Joe Biden and, or God help us, Kamala Harris, right, um, orders the army to open fire on someone or something like that. You mean, a, you mean like a very open display of force where no one can even pretend it's just, it's anything about that? Yeah, I mean, if, 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 they, start, if they start down that route, um, you know, Ch- China has had periods of being a hard managerial regime as well. Uh, that will be the moment of truth because lots of times in history when we've had revolutions, um, it has been because the army would not play ball. Uh, for, for example, my dad is from Iran um, and uh, the Shah of Iran uh, faced this exact scenario in 1979. Was he cheering for the Sheikh back in the day? or? <laughs> <laughs> Well, the the the, the, the Iron Sheik was his bodyguard for a while, <laughs> uh, believe it or not. Uh, he was like in real life. Wait, really? Uh, that legitimately? Yeah, the, the the Iron Sheik in in, in the early seventies was the the Shah's bodyguard. Wow, that, that was incredible. Claim, that was claim to I fame. had no idea. Yeah, I know. It sort of makes sense. I mean, he was a real life legit tough guy, so I guess that 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 computes. Yeah, I know he was a he was an Olympic wrestler as well. Oh, um, yeah. So, but, but anyway, the the Shah when he. When he when he said open fire on the uh, on the crowd, the the army was like no. 
uh, we're going to side with the Ayatollah instead. And that was it. That's the that's it for any regime, right? Um, so, so that's one scenario which seems a bit far-fetched from where we're sitting today, but eventually it will have to come to that. Um, the other scenario, which it, I think if the regime is smart, they'll take, okay? And a lot of people listening to this are not going to like what I'm about to say, okay? Um, the other the other option to save to save the regime would be to give the right a few wins, mm-hmm. right? To let Trump win in 2024, to give DeSantis a uh, few more of these uh, stop woke act type victories that he's doing at the minute, and to get, to let people get the general idea that um, you know uh, the, the pushback is gaining traction. Would you see that sort of to the idea of letting Trump win, which kind of speaks to? If they didn't let him win last time, would would that be in your eyes to sort of bring back into the fold a lot of the dissident right to say, no, the system works, the system, you still have a place in the system, so you don't need to be against the system, you just need to work within it. It, 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 Exactly. They, I mean, I'm going to speak candidly now, Mark, right? They need white boys to die in their wars, (laughs) right? At the moment, um, if, 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 if they're, you know, the, the, the core of who would be there, you know, fighting in their forever wars are listening to the likes of me, that's a problem for them. If they're checking out of the, if they're checking out of the institutions, if, if they don't have faith in that the justice system is going to be with them, um, you know, why should they? Um, so, and, and I think that the only thing that will bring so many of those people back into the fold would be something like a Trump victory or, or, or a DeSantis victory would do it as well. Um, but, but of course, it, in my view, it's containment. It would be a win for power, not a win for us. Uh, and this is a very difficult thing for people to... Uh, and I, gu- I guarantee you, 2024 will swing around. And doesn't matter what I say, there will be people who just get caught up on the Trump train yet again. And um, But only this time, he'll be their man. This time he'll be doing the bidding of the regime. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced of that. Um, if they're smart, um, and, and the reason I keep on saying if they're smart uh, is because uh, as, the me- as the weeks and the months go by, they keep on doing more and more insane things. Um, I mean, this whole U- Ukraine war thing has just been mental. So um, where, you know, Germany, like literally yesterday, Germany is facing the highest uh, producer inflation since 1949, wow. um, you know, the, the Bank of England have put up interest rates, uh, you know, highest, highest increase in interest rates since Thatcher. You know, it's just, I mean, meanwhile, uh, none of the sanctions that they, um, that they enacted have really dented Putin at all. You know, it's, it was just a massive, it, it, this, was, this is just kind of like insane virtue signaling as foreign policy yeah. now, you know. Yeah. Um, when, when I saw Lindsey Graham calling for nuclear war, I was like, why isn't he removed from office? And yet, you know, th- this is just everyday politics now. So, um, I mean, I, I've come to the conclusion that the only real solution is uh, what, what I call clear them out. They, this whole ruling class has to go. Um, the process by which that happens is uh, not easy. It will be a very long-term thing. Uh, but ultimately, I don't see a, a solution within the system anymore. You had mentioned earlier, I just wanted to kind of follow up on something you had said earlier that, you know, your book is called The Populist Illusion, and it pretty much just does break down why populist movements 
can't really in and of themselves affect uh, you know governmental or societal change or what have mm-hmm. you. But you did mention earlier that the regime does get concerned about like too much of a populist movement. So if if the populist movement can't really change the structure of things, then why would the regime ha- have any concern about a populist movement? Well, it, what the regime will really be concerned about is organization. Uh, because as Robert Michel says, organization means oligarchy. Um, I'll give you a very tangible example of when the system freaked out at actual organization. When parents started really pushing back on some of the stuff in the schools in America, and they started getting organized at a local level, and they started taking back the school boards, um, you, you saw the system freak out. You saw the um, the state apparatus come out and call concerned parents domestic terrorists, right? I mean, am I making this up? This happened, right? This happened in the last year. No, this uh, is very, very recent. Yeah, last couple months. Yeah. So, so you can see that what they really fear is not the million man rally in Washington D.C. They can take advantage of that. Uh, you know, they can get the the FBI involved to misdirect people. You know, as long as um, as long as we're getting images of Baked Alaska taking pictures of himself in Nancy Pelosi's office, these are just massive wins for the regime, right? Uh, they can deal with um, that because that is a disorganized rabble, and it's no threat to their actual power in any way. It, yeah, it's it's absolutely no threat at all to them. Because the heart of power... And it's ironic that they play up non-threats the most as real threats, like in the case of January 6th. Yeah. Yeah, the, the real uh, power always lies in the organized minority as against the disorganized mass. And what must scare them is the fact that if all of us, by which I mean the wide, what's known as the distant right, this wider sphere... Um, I don't know how many people that would be, uh, but if we re- if if people really started getting serious about organization and a tight and disciplined organization, um, well, I mean, there's huge power in that. That's why they try to infiltrate and destroy any attempts at organization. Right. That is why everybody on the right. Um, is always accusing each other of being feds, right? Or of uh, everybody's scared of the feds. Because half of them are, and half of the other half are paranoid. Paranoid of the rest are. So there you go. Yeah. Right. Uh, but the, the, but this is a well. This is a good. This is a brilliant strategy of the regime to stop people doing the one thing that would actually make change. Um. So, you know, I I think there's no way of winning through the system because the system itself, um. It would be like uh, trying to overthrow. Uh, I, I, all systems are absolutist. You know, this is a uh, Carl Schmidt. Uh, ultimately, said there's a whole chapter on Schmidt. Um, all like a liberal democracy is only ever going to give you a choice between liberal Democrat candidates, uh, and liberal democracy means what you know. Well, what what does that mean? increasingly liberal democracy means whatever they want it to mean, right? Uh, when Viktor Orban wins, a, wins, an, wins an election, that's a threat to democracy. Uh, when, when Emmanuel Macron wins it, it's a victory for democracy, right? Whatever. Um, um, I, I don't believe that there's any, any path to victory through that. I don't think you can trust the courts. I don't think you can trust any institution. I don't think you can trust 
you know, as we talked about, they control all parts of that game. So, to, so to me, it's like trying to trying to win a game that's already been rigged against you. Um, we we have to win on our own terms, um, and those those terms ultimately will be, you know, eventually they'll be revolutionary. Trying to win Monopoly when you're, you know, your corrupt asshole brother is the banker. It's like you're, you're never gonna you're never gonna catch up here. I just want to mention for your uh, viewers, Mark, that um, despite everything I did, despite all the things I've just said, I fully support the UK government and all they do. Whatever I meant to believe this week, of course, I, yes. I believe. And uh, you know, Any, I, anything I, in here I, otherwise I, is just you playing the character of academic agent. <laughs> it, 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 exactly, and uh, I encourage everybody else to, to fully, fully support the the current thing, whatever that is. Um, <laughs> but I, aside, aside from that caveat. Um, yeah, I, I don't see any other. I don't see any other way. Um, and unfortunately, the the reality of the, of the situation is, is that that has to happen in America. If it if it if, if it's going to happen anywhere, it has to happen in America because Europe um, remains occupied territory. I mean, this is just a fact. Uh, you know, there are American bases all. Or you know, uh, I mean, Germany is literally an occupied country still. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know. Like the, I mean, the UK. Um, you could have very good arguments about whether the true centre of the pause is Washington or London, right? Because London has always been a, a, a particular node of the regime. Um, but uh, there's there's no way of any of Europe doing anything until the uh, the American lesbian stiletto is lifted from our. <laughs> Um, that is a so, phrase so I'm, I'm afraid. To, <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to say that um, uh, the the American Empire has to fall for for any of us to get anywhere, uh, and it's not. It probably won't be pretty, but um, eventually it will become intolerable. Um, or or they'll give the right a few token wins, and uh, everybody will go back to watching NFL or whatever. So. <laughs> what would you say to those, um, and there are a good number of those probably in this audience right now who have the idea of, and, and maybe it doesn't matter what, insert whatever ideology you want right here. In this case, it's the idea of libertarianism and freedom or what have you, that if we just let enough people know, it's just due to their lack of knowledge about this amazing philosophy. If we just inform enough people that this philosophy exists then we will see the change that we want and we'll see a more free society, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I mean, you break down pretty well in the populist illusion why that's a fallacious idea, but what would you, what, what would you suggest otherwise? I, I suggest, I would say to those that, mm -hmm. that, that kind of have that idea and have that strategy that if we just, if we just share our ideas, if we just convince enough people of our philosophy, that will change the regime as we see it. Yeah. I, I would say this is one of the biggest myths of liberalism. Um, there's something I call the, the, the boom of truth regime. Um, and I mean, I don't blame people for believing this because we're pumped full of it, like in school and on TV, you know, um, millions of people marched, uh, in Washington, Bob Dylan played the guitar and lo, there were civil rights, <laughs> you know, Martin Luther King gave a speech and he, he was so convincing that he convinced, uh, you know, he convinced everybody that uh, civil rights were the way to go. Um, this is the story that we're all told. Um, but it's just not true. Um, the civil rights movement was a minority organized movement, had tremendous financial backing. Um, it was, uh, you know, 
all of that stuff gives the appearance of popular support, right? It's good to go optics. It's I part guess. of the it's part of the narrative that we receive is that yes, if you just if you just get the ideas out there, then you're going to get the change you want. But but, but it, it, in actuality, um, nothing could be further than the truth. Uh, I, I start the book with um, uh, a stat uh, looking at over one thousand seven hundred laws uh, that have been passed in the U.S. over the past decade. Um, and researchers found that there's a near zero correlation between public opinion and what lawmakers actually do. <laughs> near zero. Um, and you can see it on pretty much any issue. I mean, Im- immigration is the banner one, right? Um, th- the idea that, uh, you know, the majority of the country wanted mass immigration at any time in the past hundred years is just nonsense. It's just nonsense. Uh, you can even you can even go back um, and have a look at uh, debates around the the 1965 Immigration Act, uh, which again was concerted minority effort, uh, lobby groups, uh, powerful people um, able to pass laws. And to be clear, when when you're talking about minority movements in the sense of the civil rights or immigration, you're not talking about the minorities in those groups. You're talking about minorities within the elite class that, that are a small group that are very organized that, that then make that change. Yeah, yes, yes, sorry. To, to, yes, to be clear, I don't mean minority in the sense of being black or Jewish or whatever. I mean, um, uh, I mean in that case, they were, right, right. Uh, the civil rights. Uh, but I mean uh, in the sense of being a 100 as, as opposed to being a 1,000. The hundred will beat the thousand ten times out of ten if they're organized, um, or the thousand will beat the million if you you know, or the you know, and you can you can see it in issue after issue. Um, that there's a very good book by Manko Olson called uh, "The Logic of Collective Action," um, who shows that uh, why this happens in democracies. That the, the and it's it's pretty simple. The majority can never agree on one thing that they all want to focus on at the same time, right? Um, Whereas if you're, I don't know, a climate change lobbyist, that's your one thing. It's your only thing. And you and the other thousand people in that lobby group, that's all you care about 24-7. Whereas me and you, we've got a hundred concerns and we, you know, we can't all face the same way at the same time. So... You know the minority will always win. They'll always beat the uh, the, the majority on every issue. Um, and I, I don't see how anybody could look at uh, the direction of U.S. politics since <sighs> arguably 1933. Um, could even go before that, um, and uh, and say, oh yeah, really, the, the the will of the American people has been enacted by the lawmakers. It, it just hasn't been. Um, everybody knows that. Uh, lawmakers are um, uh, answer to uh, donors, to uh, lobbyists, um, and uh, do not make decisions in the interests of me or you. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. I'm curious if we could just, you know, maybe continue down this theoretical path a little bit more about where you potentially see things going, given sort of the context and and knowledge about how how the elites work. And, you know, perhaps looking at the circulation of the elites, as you talk about in the book, uh, Pareto's concept that, Mm -hmm. yes, these 
well, we always have a system of elites. That that part we're pretty much never going to be able to change, but you can change the elites sometimes. So if, if you're looking at the possible paths of the next few years and everything is centered around the U.S., um, you know, one path you laid out is they allow a Trump victory and that maybe quells the right for some amount of time, lets them think we've got some power here. And maybe that maybe that continues things a little while, actually. The opposite is they mm-hmm. do it again. <laughs> they put out another Time Art Time yeah. magazine article and it becomes even more obvious than ever. So what's a possible path? you see coming from that if the regime does take more uh i don't know if you want to say a hard turn in, in the sense you were describing earlier oh. about physical violence but uh a more just like we're going to be even more transparent about how much we do not represent the interests of the people here yeah i mean what i would like what i would like to see eventually is 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 for is for a vanguard um to um you know, to push an organized resistance and eventually overthrow them to become a new elite themselves. Um, that seems very unlikely as right now, okay. But as a long-term prospect, if things get bad enough, maybe, maybe that will happen, and maybe uh, stuff that we've been doing will lay the groundwork. You know, once you understand all of these things, you then understand what needs to be done. Um, however, more realistically, as to what else might happen, you could get something called de facto balkanization. Um, this has already happened in some parts of America, right? Um, there are some parts of America where the police have just given up trying to maintain order. They've they've kind of outsourced it to gangs on the street, right? Um, I mean, th- th- this has typically happened uh, in in certain black areas, like the areas of Chicago. The police don't even bother trying anymore. Areas of um, areas of Detroit. Uh, I would say parts of my former home of Los Angeles and parts of California falls right into that as well. I mean, they have, they have laws even saying we're not going to bother if you're stealing less than $800 worth of stuff. Yeah. I mean, they've, they've just, they've just given up, uh, they, you know, so, so, so essentially what you have, that's a, uh, you know, San Francisco used to call this uh, a narco tyranny in those places. Um, now so far that's happened with, uh, cl- what I would call client groups of the regime. Okay, uh, th- there's another thinker I talk about called J- uh, Bertrand de Juvenal, who talks about the high-low middle mechanism. Okay, power, the high, always has client groups, the low, who they use as a battering ram against the middle. Okay, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that the high-low middle mechanism in America t- today is using various um minority groups in the other sense right whether they be latino uh black lgbt you you name it uh, refugees whatever um uh, women uh, are, are a group they've tried to do this with um they use that and they say well we we are your we're fighting for your liberties against these oppressors Okay, um, but the, the juvenile does this thing where he he goes all through history and shows how uh, this was often the case. Like classically, the king would side with the peasants against the nobles, right? The high low middle mechanism: the king with the peasants against the nobles. Julius Caesar's coalition was Caesar, uh, the commoners versus. The, uh, the 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 oligarchical class in um, Trump's coalition, in, in a strange way, was similar, right? Uh, only the other way, he was he was going to be the Caesar of the um, uh, what did Hillary call them? The the un, the untouchables, the deplorables. deplorables yeah. That was it. Um, 
so so Trump's co- coalition was kind of recognizably Caesary as well. But but our high low middle mechanism is you know the uh, the elites, whatever you want to call them, the the, the sort of class uh, uh, who who support uh, Joe Biden, and then a kind of underclass of people who. Um, you know, welfare recipients, you, you, you name it, who are then uh, used to attack um, the middle, which is basically white middle-class Americans who, 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 t- who tend to be the, the target group a lot of the time. Um, but, 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 but anyway, um, the, the balkanization has typically happened among these client groups, but there's nothing to say that should the situation become bad enough that you don't start see you don't start to see this happen in um uh, GOP areas in white areas in um you know wh- where you wh- where you basically get self-governing white enclaves um a little bit similar to how you see that in South Africa uh now obviously it's pretty marked in South Africa cuz you know that there's a huge population disparity um but I don't see why that wouldn't happen um, if they double down, like you said, Mark. Uh, I don't know what you think about that because you know that situation starts c- could start to look hoppian after a while. <laughs> yeah, and it's like part part of me thinks this sounds great potentially. I mean, considering all the options, the other part of me thinks, boy, a bunch of white enclaves that just looks like a new target for, for like you know pr- proving the. Uh, Proving all the you know everything the regime says about white people or what have you or the the, the latest you know why the whites are the oppressors mm-hmm. so that like look they're all gathering in these in these six areas now look what they're plotting so I, I could I could see that working out a few different ways I, I I've actually seen the regime start to turn to really odd lines of attack like in in this country the the the, the BBC run articles like um, oh um, the countryside. Is a is a holdout of white privilege. Why are there more black people in the country? It's like, well, you know, there's nothing stopping them going for a walk on the in the forest or whatever. It's just, <laughs> you know, they just they just don't do it. Um, but you, you understand that they always recognise these little pockets of, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. It can be like, um, you know, tabletop RPG games. You know, any any little any little area. Um, that that white men want to keep for themselves. Yeah, now there's or, articles that like, are, are you if you're into if you're if you're too much into fitness, there's a decent chance you're running in white supremacist circles. It's like now just now just taking care of yourself is considered white supremacy. Yeah, so so, so they've always got their eye out for these sorts of things, but um, I just I just struggle to see how things won't go that way if they don't start winning people back. Because uh, I, I I do get the impression that um, because if they didn't lose people over the Trump business, you know, there's also the COVID, and then there, there was also Ukraine. A number of loyalty tests in a row here. Yeah, I mean, there, there's just been like one too many of these, um, one too many of these shit tests, basically, um, and uh, they they come thick and fast. Like they'd be, I think there's something about the. The, the business model of the media at the moment where it's a constant um it's like a constant state state of like hyper anxiety you know um that they have to keep it like it's always like it's not just a threat it's like the biggest threat in the world yeah. um 
you know, uh, Roe versus Wade being overturned, you name it. Um, obviously, like a week later, everybody forgets again. So they need they need a new thing. Um, but it's just not sustainable. You can't you can't be like that all the time. Um, so I, something we'll have to give somewhere. Right, well, we shall see. I think that's a good, good place to leave off for now. Um, but, you know, in the meantime, I definitely want to encourage people like um, I think your book, The Populist Delusion, is probably I think that you think you're supposed to pronounce it primer. I've always said primer, probably the best primer or primer on on elite theory that I've uh, at least found in modern times. I mean, it introduces you to all the works that you can be introduced to if you want to dive further. But you can pretty much understand the concept in I think like 150 pages or less. So I, I definitely want to recommend checking out uh, the book Populist Illusion. Let everybody know um, well a, where they can find your work as well as the best way to buy the book. I did the I'll admit I did the very easy thing and I, I just uh, clicked a, a button on Amazon and it showed up on my iPad, but if there are better ways to get that book, uh, please let everybody know. Well, if you want to give more money yes, to me, you can I mean. buy it <laughs> yeah. uh, on, on on Imperium Press. Uh, but um, a, a lot of people have bought it on Amazon. It was a uh, it was number one on there for a while. You know, um, it, you know, it was ironic. It was number one in the category of elections and democracy. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a grand irony for sure. <laughs> um, I, I will say as well that. Um, I did try to write the book from not not from any particular point of view, so it's not like um, even though it's called the populist delusion, uh, and even though I'm a, you know people think of me as a right winger or a reactionary or whatever, uh, very little of that is actually in the book. You could you could easily read the book uh, as a libertarian or a left winger. Sure, yeah. You could have no idea what your true beliefs are, yeah. which is very you know well. A lot of the writers you talk about, it, it's it's similar. I mean, a lot of them had like different, obviously, different political preferences, as, as you sort of refer to them. But the thing that they have, they all have in common, is that regardless of their preferences of what they'd like to see, they're all attempting to just describe things as they are and as they occur, with those beliefs sort of mm-hmm. being a separate separate thing to discuss. Yeah, I mean, you can even read it and come to the really dark conclusion that as shit as our regime is, is still the best one. <laughs> God, God help me if anybody comes to that conclusion. But still, uh, I guess it's possible. Yeah, depending on your preferences, you might say, "All right, well, this is working out great." Um, so, uh, oh, thank you so much AA, for coming on. And, and the last thing I got, I got to ask: when you were um, when you were coming up with your sort of pseudonym of academic agent, how much of the motivation was that so you could just be called AA Double A, uh, just like the great Arn Anderson? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I have to tell you a story about Please. that. Um, when I first made my channel. I called it academic anti SJW. Ah. Uh, and I, I, I emailed Sargon, Carl Benjamin, and he said, you've got to change that. He said that that will be cringe very soon. And that was the best bit of advice he gave me. So I just needed something else. And I was like, well, a, you know, inside agent agent sounds cool. I can't even remember the last time I actually heard SJW. That, that term has totally fallen by the wayside. Yeah, he, he, exactly. So I basically changed it. Um, Changed it on like day one when I made my channel, and um, it's pretty. It's a cool name though. I've, I've stuck with it. So. It, it's, it works. <laughs> it works, and it's not something you have to change based on you know the the whims of the the, the talk of the day or what have you. Great. Yep. Thank you so much, Parv. I uh, really enjoyed talking to you. And again, I highly recommend following Academic Agent on YouTube. Check out the Populist Illusion. AA, keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. Cheers. Alrighty. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with. 
academic agent. Really do got to recommend The Populist Delusion. Really easy read. And uh, if you've heard a lot of talk about elite theory, you heard this conversation, want to get a good grasp on it without reading like 10 or 12 really, really large books, you can read one really, really small book and at least get an idea of uh, some of the conversations we've been having. I discussed this as well uh, with Pete on the Pete Quinones show last week. So be sure to go back and check out my appearance on his show. And uh, don't forget, of course, do check out that GoFundMe, please. I do really want to ask you again, you can listen to uh, Greg Glyer's previous interviews on Lions of Liberty. You can just tell what a fantastic person he is. And he really created a, a revolutionary technology that is truly changing people's lives. Um, you know, getting dollar, like a couple of dollars can literally like feed people for a week or two in some of these countries, uh, like Malawi, where, where Gret spent a significant amount of time. Uh, so I really do want to encourage you to head to gofundme.com slash F slash Gret dash Glyer, or just head to GoFundMe, search Gret Glyer. If you have any problems, uh, finding how to do that, uh, please reach out to me. I'm sharing that on Twitter now as well on my Twitter account at Mark D. Claire, So you can check it out there. Of course, uh, I have to do the promotional things as well. So uh, if you want to hear interviews like this a little early, again, patreon.com slash lionsofliberty or lionsofliberty.locals.com. And of course, follow my substack, markclair.substack.com. Please do check out a little, well, I say a, light, a lighter hearted fair on the Second Print Comics podcast. But last week, I went on a rant on one of my favorite uh, comic creators of all time who just wrote the dumbest COVID related story I had ever read in my life, if nothing else. You got to go check out episode 99 of the Second Print Comics podcast. I'm just going to say it right now. If you've enjoyed my rants on this show about politics, I think you're going to enjoy at least the top of the show. So go check it out. Go check it out just one time. Do me this one favor. Another favor, please go subscribe to my Lions of Liberty with Mark Clare feed where you can find just this podcast uh, as well as uh, some repurposed interviews, uh, appearances I do on other shows. I'll probably post my appearance on Pete's show over there. So check that out as well. And while you're there, a five-star rating and a great review would do some wonders. Again, thank you all. Until next time. Live long! And live free and live free and live free and live free and live free.